Chapter One of G. K. Chesterton's Charles Dickens. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stuart Bell. G. K. Chesterton's Charles Dickens, Chapter One, The Dickens Period. Much of our modern difficulty in religion and other things arises merely from this, that we confuse the word indefinable with the word vague. If someone speaks of a spiritual fact as indefinable, we promptly picture something misty, a cloud with indeterminate edges. But this is an error even in commonplace logic. The thing that cannot be defined is the first thing, the primary fact. It is our arms and legs, our pots and pans, that are indefinable. The indefinable is the indisputable. The man next door is indefinable because he is too actual to be defined. And there are some to whom spiritual things have the same fierce and practical proximity. Some to whom God is too actual to be defined. But there is a third class of primary terms. There are popular expressions which every one uses and no one can explain, which the wise man will accept and reverence as he reverences desire or darkness or any elemental thing. The prigs of the debating club will demand that he should define his terms, and being a wise man, he will flatly refuse. This first inexplicable term is the most important term of all. The word that has no definition. Is the word that has no substitute. If a man falls back again and again on some such word as vulgar or manly, do not suppose that the word means nothing because he cannot say what it means. If he could say what the word means, he would say what it means instead of saying the word. When the game chicken, that fine thinker, kept on saying to Mister Toots, "It's mean. That's what it is. It's mean." He was using language in the wisest possible way, for what else could he say? There is no word for mean except mean. A man must be very mean himself before he comes to defining meanness. Precisely because the word is indefinable, the word is indispensable. In everyday talk or in any of our journals, we find the loose but important phrase. Why have we no great men today? Why have we no great men like Thackeray or Carlyle or Dickens? Do not let us dismiss this expression because it appears loose or arbitrary. Great does mean something, and the test of its actuality is to be found by noting how instinctively and decisively we do apply it to some men and not to others. Above all, how instinctively and decisively we do apply it to four or five men in the Victorian era, four or five men of whom Dickens was not the least. The term is found to fit a definite thing. Whatever the word "great" means, Dickens was what it means. Even the fastidious and unhappy who cannot read his books without a continuous critical exasperation would use the word of him without stopping to think. They feel that Dickens is a great writer, even if he is not a good writer. He is treated as a classic, that is, as a king who may now be deserted, but who cannot now be dethroned. 
the atmosphere of this word clings to him. And the curious thing is that we cannot get it to cling to any of the men of our own generation. Great is the first adjective which the most supercilious modern critic would apply to Dickens. And great is the last adjective that the most supercilious modern critic would apply to himself. We dare not claim to be great men, even when we claim to be superior to them. Is there, then, any vital meaning in this idea of greatness, or in our laments over its absence in our own time? Some people say, indeed, that this sense of mass is but a mirage of distance, and that men always think dead men great and live men small. They seem to think that the law of perspective in the mental world is the precise opposite to the law of perspective in the physical world. They think that figures grow larger as they walk away. But this theory cannot be made to correspond with the facts. We do not lack great men in our own day because we decline to look for them in our own day. On the contrary, we're looking for them all day long. We're not, as a matter of fact, mere examples of those who stone the prophets and leave it to their posterity to build their sepulchres. If the world would only produce our perfect prophet, solemn, searching, universal, nothing would give us keener pleasure than to build his sepulchre. In our eagerness we might even bury him alive. Nor is it true that the great men of the Victorian era were not called great in their own time. By many they were called great from the first. Charlotte Bronte held this heroic language about Thackeray. Ruskin held it about Carlyle. A definite school regarded Dickens as a great man from the first days of his fame. Dickens certainly belonged to this school. In reply to this question, why have we no great men today, many modern explanations are offered. Advertisement, cigarette smoking, the decay of religion, the decay of agriculture, too much humanitarianism, too little humanitarianism, the fact that people are educated insufficiently, the fact that they are educated at all, all these reasons are given. If I give my own explanation, it's not for its intrinsic value. It's because the answer to the question, why have we no great men, is a short way of stating the deepest and most catastrophic difference between the age in which we live and the early 19th century. The age under the shadow of the French Revolution. The age in which Dickens was born. The soundest of the Dickens critics, a man of genius, Mr George Gissing, opens his criticism by remarking that the world in which Dickens grew up was a hard and cruel world. He notes its gross feeding, its fierce sports, its fighting and foul humour, and all this he summarises in the words hard and cruel. It is curious how different are the impressions of men. To me, this old English world seems infinitely less hard and cruel than the world described in Gissing's own novels. Coarse external customs are merely relative and easily assimilated. A man soon learnt to harden his hands and harden his head. Faced with the world of Gissing, he can do little but harden his heart. But the fundamental difference between the beginning of the 19th century and the end of it is a difference simple but enormous. The first period was full of evil things, but it was full of hope. The second period, the fin de siècle, was even full, in some sense, of good things but it was occupied in asking what was the good of good things. 
joy itself became joyless, and the fighting of Cobbett was happier than the feasting of Walter Pater. The men of Cobbett's day were sturdy enough to endure and inflict brutality, but they were also sturdy enough to alter it. This hard and cruel age was, after all, the age of reform. The gibbet stood up black above them, but it was black against the dawn. This dawn, against which the gibbet and all the old cruelties stood out so black and clear, was the developing idea of liberalism, the French Revolution. It was a clear and a happy philosophy. And only against such philosophies do evils appear evident at all. The optimist is a better reformer than the pessimist, and the man who believes life to be excellent is the man who alters it most. It seems a paradox, yet the reason of it is very plain. The pessimist can be enraged at evil, but only the optimist can be surprised at it. From the reformer is required a simplicity of surprise. He must have the faculty of a violent and virgin astonishment. It is not enough that he should think injustice distressing. He must think injustice absurd, an anomaly in existence, a matter less for tears than for a shattering laughter. On the other hand, the pessimists at the end of the century could hardly curse even the blackest thing, for they could hardly see it against its black and eternal background. Nothing was bad because everything was bad. Life in prison was infamous, like life anywhere else. The fires of persecution were vile, like the stars. We perpetually find this paradox of a contented discontent. Dr. Johnson takes too sad a view of humanity, but he is also too satisfied a conservative. Rousseau takes too rosy a view of humanity, but he causes a revolution. Swift is angry, but a Tory. Shelley is happy and a rebel. Dickens, the optimist, satirizes the fleet, and the fleet is gone. Gissing, the pessimist, satirizes suburbia, and suburbia remains. Mr. Gissing's error, then, about the early Dickens period, we may put thus. In calling it hard and cruel, he emits the wind of hope and humanity that was blowing through it. It may have been full of inhuman institutions, but it was full of humanitarian people. And this humanitarianism was very much the better, in my view, because it was a rough and even rowdy humanitarianism. It was free from all the faults that cling to the name. It was, if you will, a coarse humanitarianism. It was a shouting, fighting, drinking philanthropy, a noble thing. But in any case, this atmosphere was the atmosphere of the revolution and its main idea was the idea of human equality. I am not concerned here to defend the egalitarian idea against the solemn and babyish attacks made upon it by the rich and learned of today. I am merely concerned to state one of its practical consequences. One of the actual and certain consequences of the idea that all men are equal is immediately to produce very great men. I would say superior men only that the hero thinks of himself as great, but not as superior. This has been hidden from us of late by a foolish worship of sinister and exceptional men, men without comradeship or any infectious virtue. 
this type of Caesar does exist. There is a great man who makes every man feel small. But the real great man is the man who makes every man feel great. The spirit of the early century produced great men, because it believed that men were great. It made strong men by encouraging weak men. Its education, its public habits, its rhetoric were all addressed towards encouraging the greatness in everybody. And by encouraging the greatness in everybody, it naturally encouraged superlative greatness in some. Superiority came out of the high rapture of equality. It is precisely in this sort of passionate unconsciousness and bewildering community of thought that men do become more than themselves. No man, by taking thought, can add one cubit to his stature. But a man may add many cubits to his stature by not taking thought. The best men of the revolution were simply common men at their best. This is why our age can never understand Napoleon. Because he was something great and triumphant, we suppose that he must have been something extraordinary, something inhuman. Some say he was the devil. Some say he was the superman. Was he a very, very bad man? Was he a good man with some greater moral code? We strive in vain to invent the mysteries behind that immortal mask of brass. The modern world, with all its subtleness, will never guess his strange secret, for his strange secret was that he was very like other people. And almost without exception, all the great men have come out of this atmosphere of equality. Great men may make despotisms, but democracies make great men. The other main factory of heroes besides a revolution is a religion. And a religion, again, is a thing which, by its nature, does not think of men as more or less valuable, but of men as all intensively and painfully valuable, a democracy of eternal danger. For religion, all men are equal, as all pennies are equal, because the only value in any of them is that they bear the image of the king. This fact has been quite insufficiently observed in the study of religious heroes. Piety produces intellectual greatness, precisely because piety in itself is quite indifferent to intellectual greatness. The strength of Cromwell was that he cared for religion. But the strength of religion was that it did not care for Cromwell, did not care for him, that is, any more than for anybody else. He and his footmen were equally welcome to warm places in the hospitality of hell. It has often been said, very truly, that religion is the thing that makes the ordinary man feel extraordinary. But it is an equally important truth that religion is the thing that makes the extraordinary man feel ordinary. Carlyle killed the heroes. There have been none since his time. He killed the heroic, which he sincerely loved, by forcing upon each man this question, Am I strong or weak? to which the answer from any honest man whatever, yes, from Caesar or Bismarck, would weak. He asked for candidates for a definite aristocracy, for men who should hold themselves consciously above their fellows. He advertised for them, so to speak. He promised them glory. He promised them omnipotence. They have not appeared yet. They never will. For the real heroes of whom he wrote had appeared out of an ecstasy of the ordinary. I have already instanced such a case as Cromwell. 
but there's no need to go through all the great men of Carlyle. Carlyle himself was as great as any of them, and if ever there was a typical child of the French Revolution, it was he. He began with the wildest hopes from the Reform Bill, and although he soured afterwards, he had been made and moulded by those hopes. He was disappointed with equality, but equality was not disappointed with him. Equality is justified of all her children. But we, in the post-Kalayan period, have become fastidious about great men. Every man examines himself, every man examines his neighbours, to see whether they or he quite come up to the exact line of greatness. The answer is naturally no. And many a man calls himself contentedly a minor poet, who would then have been inspired to be a major prophet. We are hard to please and of little faith. We can hardly believe that there is such a thing as a great man. They could hardly believe that there was such a thing as a small one. But we are always praying that our eyes may behold greatness, instead of praying that our hearts may be filled with it. Thus, for instance, the Liberal Party, to which I belong, was in its period of exile always saying, Oh, for a Gladstone, and such things. We were always asking that it might be strengthened from above, instead of ourselves strengthening it from below, with our hope and our anger and our youth. Every man was waiting for a leader. Every man ought to be waiting for a chance to lead. If a god does come upon the earth, he will descend at the sight of the brave. Our prostrations and litanies are of no avail. Our new moons and our sabbaths are an abomination. The great man will come when all of us are feeling great, not when all of us are feeling small. He will ride in at some splendid moment when we all feel that we could do without him. We are then able to answer in some manner the question, why have we no great men? We have no great men chiefly because we're always looking for them. We are connoisseurs of greatness, and connoisseurs can never be great. We are fastidious, that is, we are small. When Diogenes went about with the lantern looking for an honest man, I'm afraid he had very little time to be honest himself. And when anybody goes about on his hands and knees looking for a great man to worship, he is making sure that one man, at any rate, shall not be great. Now the error of Diogenes is evident. The error of Diogenes lay in the fact that he omitted to notice that every man is both an honest man and a dishonest man. Diogenes looked for his honest man inside every crypt and cavern, but he never thought of looking inside the thief. And that is where the founder of Christianity found the honest man. He found him on a gibbet and promised him paradise. Just as Christianity looked for the honest man inside the thief, democracy looked for the wise man inside the fool. It encouraged the fool to be wise. We can call this thing sometimes optimism, sometimes equality. The nearest name for it is encouragement. It had its exaggerations, failure to understand original sin, notions that education would make all men good, the childlike yet pedantic philosophies of human perfectibility. But the whole was full of a faith in the infinity of human souls, which is in itself not only Christian but orthodox, and this we have lost amid the limitations of a pessimistic science.
Christianity said that any man could be a saint if he chose. Democracy, that any man could be a citizen if he chose. The note of the last few decades in art and ethics has been that a man is stamped with an irrevocable psychology and is cramped for perpetuity in the prison of his skull. It was a world that expected everything of everybody. It was a world that encouraged anybody to be anything. And in England and literature, its living expression was Dickens. We shall consider Dickens in many other capacities, but let us put this one first. He was the voice in England of this humane intoxication and expansion, this encouraging of anybody to be anything. His best books are a carnival of liberty, and there is more of the real spirit of the French Revolution in Nicholas Nickleby than in The Tale of Two Sitters. His work has the great glory of the revolution, the bidding of every man to be himself. It also has the revolutionary deficiency. It seems to think that this mere emancipation is enough. No man encouraged his characters so much as Dickens. I am an affectionate father, he says, to every child of my fancy. He was not only an affectionate father, he was an overindulgent father. The children of his fancy are spoilt children. They shake the house like heavy and shouting schoolboys. They smash the story to pieces like so much furniture. When we moderns write stories, our characters are better controlled. But, alas, our characters are rather easier to control. We are in no danger from the gigantic gambles of creatures like Mantelidia Micawber. We are in no danger of giving our readers too much weller or weg. We've not got it to give. When we experience the ungovernable sense of life which goes along with the old Dickens sense of liberty, we experience the best of the revolution. We're filled with the first of all democratic doctrines, that all men are interesting. Dickens tried to make some of his people appear dull people, but he couldn't keep them dull. He could not make a monotonous man. The bores in his books are brighter than the wits in other books. I've put this position first for a defined reason. It is useless for us to attempt to imagine Dickens and his life unless we are able at least to imagine this old atmosphere of a democratic optimism, a confidence in common men. Dickens depends upon such a comprehension in a rather unusual manner, a manner worth explanation, or at least remark. The disadvantage under which Dickens has fallen, both as an artist and a moralist, is very plain. His misfortune is that neither of the two last movements in literary criticism has done him any good. He has suffered alike from his enemies and from the enemies of his enemies. The facts to which I refer are familiar. When the world first awoke from the mere hypnotism of Dickens, from the direct tyranny of his temperament, there was, of course, a reaction. At the head of it came the realists, with their documents like Miss Flight. They declared that scenes and types and Dickens were wholly impossible, in which they were perfectly right, and on this rather paradoxical ground, objected to them as literature. They were not like life, and there, they thought, was an end of the matter. The realist for a time prevailed. But realists did not enjoy their victory, if they enjoyed anything, very long. A more symbolic school of criticism soon arose. 
men saw that it was necessary to give a much deeper and more delicate meaning to the expression like life streets are not life cities and civilizations are not life faces and even voices are not life itself life is within and no man hath seen it at any time as for our meals and our manners and our daily dress these are things exactly like sonnets they are random symbols of the soul one man tries to express himself in books another in boots both probably fail our solid houses and square meals are in the strict sense fiction they are things made up to typify our thoughts the coat a man wears may be wholly fictitious the movement of his hands may be quite unlike life this much the intelligence of man soon perceived and by this much dickens fame should have greatly profited for dickens is like life in the truest sense in the sense that he is akin to the living principle in us and in the universe he is like life at least in this detail that he is alive his art is like life, because, like life, it cares for nothing outside itself and goes on its way rejoicing. Both produce monsters with a kind of carelessness, like enormous by-products, life producing the rhinoceros, and art Mr. Bunsby. Art indeed copies life in not copying life, for life copies nothing. Dickens' art is like life because, like life, it is irresponsible because like life it is incredible yet the return of this realization has not greatly profited dickens the return of romance has been almost useless to this great romantic he has gained as little from the fall of the realists as from their triumph there has been a revolution there has been a counter-revolution there has been no restoration and the reason of this brings us back to that atmosphere of popular optimism of which I spoke. And the shortest way of expressing the more recent neglect of Dickens is to say that, for our time and taste, he exaggerates the wrong thing. Exaggeration is the definition of art. That both Dickens and the moderns understood. Art is, in its inmost nature, fantastic. Time brings queer revenges, and while the realists were yet living, the art of Dickens was justified by Aubrey Beardsley. But men like Aubrey Beardsley were allowed to be fantastic, because the mood which they overstrained and overstated was a mood which their period understood. Dickens overstrains and overstates a mood our period does not understand. The truth he exaggerates is exactly this old revolution sense of infinite opportunity and boisterous brotherhood, and we resent his undue sense of it, because we ourselves have not even a due sense of it. We feel troubled with too much where we have too little. We wish he would keep it within bounds. For we are all exact and scientific on the subjects we do not care about. We all immediately detect exaggeration in an exposition of Mormonism or patriotic speech from Paraguay. We all require sobriety on the subject of the sea serpent. But the moment we begin to believe a thing ourselves, that moment we begin easily to overstate it. And the moment our souls become serious, our words become a little wild. And certain moderns are thus placed towards exaggeration. 
They permit any writer to emphasize doubts, for instance, for doubts are their religion, but they permit no man to emphasize dogmas. If a man be the mildest Christian, they smell cant, but he can be a raving windmill of pessimism, and they call it temperament. If a moralist paints a wild picture of immorality, they doubt its truth. They say that devils are not as black as they are painted. But if a pessimist paints a wild picture of melancholy, they accept the whole horrible psychology, and they never ask if devils are as blue as they are painted. It is evident, in short, why even those who admire exaggeration do not admire Dickens. He is exaggerating the wrong thing. They know what it is to feel a sadness so strange and deep that only impossible characters can express it. They do not know what it is to feel a joy so vital and violent that only impossible characters can express that. They know that the soul can be so sad as to dream naturally of the blue faces of the corpses of Baudelaire. They do not know that the soul can be so cheerful as to dream naturally of the blue face of Major Bagstock. They know that there is a point of depression at which one believes in Tantazil. They do not know that there is a point of exhilaration at which one believes in Mr. Wegg. To them the impossibilities of Dickens seem much more impossible than they really are, because they are already attuned to the opposite impossibilities of Metalink. For every mood there is an appropriate impossibility, a decent and tactful impossibility fitted to the frame of mind. Every train of thought may end in an ecstasy, and all roads lead to Elfland. But few now walk far enough along the street of Dickens to find the place where the Cockney villas grow so comic that they become poetical. People do not know how far mere good spirits will go. For instance, we never think, as the old folklore did, of good spirits reaching to the spiritual world. We see this in the complete absence from modern popular supernaturalism of the old popular mirth. We hear plenty today of the wisdom of the spiritual world, but we do not hear, as our fathers did, of the folly of the spiritual world, of the tricks of the gods and the jokes of the patron saints. Our popular tales tell us of a man who is so wise that he touches the supernatural, like Dr. Nicola, but they never tell us, like the popular tales of the past, of a man who is so silly that he touched the supernatural, like Bottom the Weaver. We do not understand the dark and transcendental sympathy between fairies and fools. We understand a devout occultism, an evil occultism, a tragic occultism, but a farcical occultism is beyond us. Yet a farcical occultism is the very essence of the Midsummer Night's Dream. It is also the right and credible essence of the Christmas Carol. Whether we understand it depends on whether we can understand that exhilaration is not a physical accident, but a mystical fact, that exhilaration can be infinite like sorrow, that a joke can be so big that it breaks the roof of the stars. By simply going on being absurd, a thing can become godlike. There is but one step from the ridiculous to the sublime. Dickens was great because he was immoderately possessed with all this. If we are to understand him at all, we must also be moderately possessed with it. 
We must understand this old limitless hilarity and human confidence, at least enough to be able to endure it when it is pushed a great deal too far. For Dickens did push it too far. He did push the hilarity to the point of incredible character drawing. He did push the human confidence to the point of an unconvincing sentimentalism. You can trace, if you will, the revolutionary joy till it reaches the incredible sapsy epitaph. You can trace the revolutionary hope till it reaches the repentance of Dombe. There is plenty to carp at in this man if you are inclined to carp. You may easily find him vulgar if you cannot see that he is divine, and if you cannot laugh with Dickens, undoubtedly you can laugh at him. I believe myself that this braver world of his will certainly return, for I believe that it is bound up with the realities, like morning and the spring. But for those who beyond remedy regard it as an error, I put this appeal before any other observations on Dickens. First let us sympathise, if only for an instant, with the hopes of the Dickens period, with that cheerful trouble of change. If democracy has disappointed you, do not think of it as a burst bubble, but at least as a broken heart, an old love affair. Do not sneer at the time when the creed of humanity was on its honeymoon. Treat it with the dreadful reverence that is due to youth. For you, perhaps, a drearier philosophy has covered and eclipsed the earth. The fierce poet of the Middle Ages wrote, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here, over the gates of the lower world. The emancipated poets of today have written it across the gates of this world. But if we are to understand the story which follows, we must erase that apocalyptic writing, if only for an hour. We must recreate the faith of our fathers, if only as an artistic atmosphere. If, then, you are a pessimist in reading this story, forgo for a little the pleasures of pessimism. Dream for one mad moment that the grass is green. Unlearn that sinister learning that you think so clear. Deny that deadly knowledge that you think you know. Surrender the very flower of your culture. Give up the very jewel of your pride. Abandon hopelessness, all ye who enter here. End of chapter one. Recording by Stuart Bell, Cambridge, UK. www.stuartbell.co.uk